If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call Parents and Addicts in Need at 559-579-1551 or check us out online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media at Pain Nonprofit. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube. To donate, please click the link in the description and help us save more lives gripped by addiction. Activity that people can do is really about creating a belief system in self that says I can, I will, and I'm able through small actionary items, but also narrative therapy in which this is why we do what we do, CBT trauma-based therapy. This is how we reframe the experience that we're having. And then this is the work that supports that. Mm-hmm. Over time, you see as change, right? Just like you said, you don't turn on the light switch and have positive self-esteem. Self-esteem is an actionary thing. It's mm-hmm. a verb. If you want self-esteem, you have to do something to earn it. Before we get to part one of our conversation with Tony Hoffman on the Don't Hide the Scars podcast, we want to thank these following sponsors for supporting parents and addicts in need. Ashgen Lighting. Whether you're choosing a new lighting style or needing to repair your favorite desk lamp, James Ashgen Lighting is the premier destination. The choices are endless for manufactured lighting, custom lighting, outdoor lighting, commercial lighting, and home decor. They will guide you every step of the way, from providing the perfect lighting style to installation. EECU, Educational Employees Credit Union. Unlike many other types of financial institutions, they're a not-for-profit financial institution solely owned by their members. There are no stockholders. Each EECU member is an owner in equal standing and has the right to attend the annual meeting and vote for the Board of Directors and Supervisory Committee. Don't Hide the Scars, a weekly podcast focused on addiction and recovery. Created by the nonprofit Pain, parents and addicts in need, and founded by Flint Anderson. Tony Hoffman, thank you for joining founder of Parents and Addicts in Need, Flint Anderson, and myself, Jason Lachance, always looking dapper, my brother. Try to be. <laughs> <laughs> you pull it off. He Thanks, is. A, he is a fashion statement. I gotta uh, tell you. Yes, and I always have been. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I was when I was on my mom's dime. I was really good at it. But yeah. when adulthood yeah. and parenthood hit, that changed real quick. Yeah. I, uh, I, I go to I go to Facebook just to see what Tony's wearing these days. No, oh, sir, yeah. no, seriously, man. Yeah. I mean I mean I thought I like shoes, but brother, you like shoes. I, I yeah, you love are, shoes. You bet. And um, I have a, a BMXer that uh, went to the Olympics in two thousand sixteen. We're still friends and he comments a lot on my, my Instagram posts. And uh, the outfit I'm wearing right now, he literally commented on my post, you wore that outfit to Bakersfield? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, don't, I can't get away from, from loud, uh, sometimes maybe obnoxious outfits. I don't know. I've just always been into it. So Hey, hey, you wear it well, man. Hey, thanks. I yeah, appreciate absolutely. it. Uh, I seem to become the flannel guy all of a sudden. So everybody, <laughs> Not right. oh, you didn't wear a flannel today? I don't know. <laughs> Well, when uh, you wear flannels when it's 105 outside, I mean, I got to question that just a little bit, you know. Well, the sleeves roll up. Yeah. But uh, before we all jumped in the studio here, we are having a, uh, as we are, just three passionate individuals conversation. Uh, as of this recording, you were at a school down in the Oil Dale area, Bakersfield, and we mm-hmm. were talking just about the aftermath of coming out of the lockdown and how it's hitting these kids because it's. Um, yeah. If, I mean, how many days, Flint, do I come in pissed off about the fact of how policy affected these kids? Oh, just about every day that yeah. you come in here. Yeah. Yeah. No, seriously, it's bad. And, and it, I don't think it's just kids. I think it was adults, too. Oh, uh, you know, one of the big struggles that administration has had around the country with kids, in my experience, coming back into, you know, basically not having a job, doing some virtual talks, going to a more strenuous schedule than I've ever had is getting kids to be able to sit still in an Mm. auditorium or a classroom Mm. anymore because they've never had to do that in the last two years. They were able to kind of have freedom, no structure, really no discipline that provided them some of these very fundamental life skills that maybe we overlooked or took for granted, so to speak. And I know that uh, when I started traveling the country and people went back to work, you could tell at an entry-level job, those people didn't want to be there. Right. Mm -hmm. They don't want to work to register. They don't right. want to get you food. They don't want to bag your groceries. You could see on their face that in their mind, this made no sense. Right. Because for the last two years, they've been able to be given unemployment. 
sometimes in many cases, more money on unemployment than they made right. at their regular jobs. And, and there is a psychological consequence to creating such an environment for human beings that are designed to get up, be active, uh, participate in society and community, whether it's for yourself financially or for others in some type of support. And so when you remove all that, I think you get what we're getting now, yeah. which is a major uh, social emotional um, shift in what we see with kids no, specifically. No question. I mean, I, I see kids today, you know, just out in public somewhere and and it bothers me, especially when they're still wearing a mask, when parents have them in that mask. I mean, it, it to me, it's telling them, please be quiet. You're not worthy of being heard or seen. Mm -hmm. for that matter. Mm -hmm. And how does that not affect some young person? It has to affect them. Yeah. And again, we're, we're, we're seeing it in behavior. We're seeing it just, just in everyday life that these, these kids don't know how to be normal kids anymore. It creates a d deep apathy. Mm -hmm. Well, and you're if you're, you know, if I personally, if you wear a mask, whatever, but you know, if you're outside by yourself and you're wearing a mask, I kind of wonder what the mindset is. Yeah. Um, In the car alone. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I wonder, but it's like, you know, that, that, that's a constant state of fear. Yeah. Right. 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 The president's already said the pandemic's over. And if you're still wearing a mask at this point, um, maybe to protect yourself, but I, I just wonder what that state of fear actually right. looks like, mm -hmm. the anxiety that comes with that, that you're, you're scared to remove... Uh, a, a mask and continue, then start participating in society in the way that everybody's moved back into. Right. And that fear in itself uh, can't be good. No, yeah. it's not healthy. It's not good in any way, shape, or form. Right. But the, the other thing, though, I mean, just on a little side note, I mean, what I want to ask these people is, by the way, how many times have you changed that mask today? Or has that been the same mask you've been wearing for six months? And how many times has it, has it been on the floorboard of your car? How many times has it been in your pocket? You know, I mean, you probably have more germs in that mask than if you didn't wear one. Yeah. yeah. I think it's the baby blanket. Yeah, like, I was going to say, when I, I see it as, a, you know, a Baba security yeah. blanket. Yeah. It's a, a way to feel safe for your pers personal self. Um, and like I say, I, I support what people want for that. I just, I, I wonder what that state of fear is actually mm -hmm. doing uh, in a psychological way for their ability to participate in society and function without major emotional blowback. Yeah, yeah I like that. Plus, but with kids now, we're probably not going to see any of that for years. Well, I think we're seeing it now. I think we're going to see the the peak of that mountain mm -hmm as they are 25 to 30 years right. old, what the workplace looks like, what the expectations for employers look like, uh, what employers are providing for employees mm -hmm. in terms of mental health. Uh, and I think that we're already trending that way where companies are becoming more conscious of the mental health crisis that we're in and making sure that they're now providing um, therapists uh, yeah. to all of their employees or workspaces at Google and Apple have, you know, uh, safe spots mm -hmm. in their campuses where people can disconnect when they feel like they need to disconnect. And I think that we're going to see that become even more of a demand or even see uh, the four-day work week. Yeah, you know, but, but I'm going to take the other side to that. Really, how much do, does does the employer have to provide for somebody? You, sure. you, you know what I'm saying? I, I mean, I'm an employer. You're an employer, right? All of a sudden now, what we we have to provide, and I'm playing devil's advocate. Sure. Here, you know, I mean, how much do we have to to, to to give these employees? Right now, they've got the best of all worlds. Yeah. You know as well as I, as employers, especially in the state of California. I, I mean, we we as employers, we we have no rights. Okay, sure. I mean, and hell, employees can put you out of business if you don't watch it. Yeah, I, I mean, and I know you're playing devil's advocate, and I'll do the same. Um, while I do support capitalism, and I truly believe that the United States is the best country in the world, and I've been to many other countries that have helped support my opinion on that. The pandemic has created a larger wealth disparity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You took jobs and stability from lower socioeconomic regions that already lacked money, and then you gave them this pot of free money, mm -hmm. and then when you went back to work, there was no work, or you took the little bit of drive that was left, 
And while this whole thing was happening, we watched these other groups become mega, mega rich. They right. were already mega rich, and now they're mega, mega rich. And so you see the wealth disparity becoming so vast and so large that now the population that does not have is looking at the haves and saying, give me a reason why I should support your vision. Right. Yeah. Because right now I don't want to help you. Right. with you being mega rich. Mm -hmm. And that does, you know, the sad part about that is um, a Subway owner makes about $35,000 a year. The person making the sandwiches in some cases believes they should be paid $20 an hour to make right. that sandwich. He makes 35000 or she makes, that person makes $35,000 a year. There's a reason why many Subway owners own several. Right. Because right. until you own five, you're not making enough money to be able to say, here's more money for what you're doing for me. Right. But when a perspective believes that just because you own a business that you are rich right. and that they no longer want to work for you, we start to create this situation where we're in where people are saying, I'm not going to work for you unless this happens, mm -hmm. yeah, which exactly. I do think some of it is good, mm -hmm. right? I, I, I'm not a fan of irresponsible capitalism. Right. We talked about responsible harm reduction. Right. There's also responsible capitalism. Of course there is. When my father was young, the business owners took care of the employees. Right. There was Christmas bonuses. There was raises. It was about taking care of the people that made your business tick and move and be successful. And nowadays, every business that's a billion-dollar company is coming up with ways to make more billions. Yeah. And it's usually cutting things from the employees. Mm -hmm. It's usually cutting things from the consumer. Use Apple as a, a, a prime right. example. They stop putting chargers in the box. Mm -hmm. Why? Because if you don't have a charger in the box, you have to pay $40 for the charger right. in the Apple store. Right. right. This is irresponsible capitalism. Right. Because who's the winner? Apple. The top. Yeah. All day long. The employees yeah. selling you it, they're not getting anything. Right. You know? Right. And so I... I see both sides where there is a responsibility on the person to create their own story and move into a position and say, this isn't what I want from life. Mm -hmm. I want more from my life. But there's also this mechanism in which the rich seem to be getting richer and the poor seem to be getting poorer. And, and Matt and I, I think we're witnessing that firsthand today in Oildale. Right. Yeah, right. You know, it's getting more poor there to the point that I listened to a kid. This is something I've never heard. A kid say today, you can't help anybody in this town. There's no hope when a kid says, you can't help anybody here, bro. Like everybody's going to use drugs or sell drugs in, in this town. I have, you know, and, and when you told me that, I have never heard that statement at a school that, that I have ever spoken at. I'm sure you haven't either. No, that's the first time. I, I, I mean, that statement in itself is frightening to me. And, and and that to me is a, is clarity on the wealth disparity and how communities that are lower socioeconomic sure. are becoming so torn apart that the individuals that are there can't even see hope at school anymore. Yep. Or there's more schools that are going to be seeing similar situations like this where the kids don't see a reason to even go to school mm -hmm. because they don't want to work for Mark Zuckerberg. Right. They don't want to work for Jeff Bezos. Right. right. They don't want to help these people who don't seem to be sharing their wealth. But, but, but don't you think that some of these kids don't even want to work at all? Sure. Because that, that's how they're being raised? Sure. I think that there's a, there's a, there's a mechanism of, you know, the, the Americanism yeah. where you, you, you can be a homeless person and have an iPhone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. But we can go to Argentina right now and people are still riding donkeys through the street. Yeah. yeah. You know, but our homeless population who is pampered heavily in California right. can have an iPhone, mm -hmm. a smartphone to connect to the internet to contact whoever they want at any time. And so these kids, they're growing up feeling like they're oppressed. Right. But in reality, when you compare them to the situations in Brazil that I saw when I was there for the Olympics, you know, living in the favelas, yeah. you know, concrete boxes. Mm -hmm. I was told they might eat two to three times a week if they were lucky. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like that kind of situation breeds a totally different perspective on what it is to wake up and breathe versus being here in America where even the people that don't have have way more than right. other countries. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. 
New Perceptions North, the premier drug and alcohol treatment and recovery center in Central California. A full continuum of medically supervised top quality care with programs for detox, inpatient residential treatment with dual diagnosis, intensive outpatient treatment, sober living, support groups, and more. With 50 plus years of combined experience and sobriety, Flint Anderson and Thelma Gatlin Wilson provide adult men and women with the highest caliber of professional health care, treating each client with compassion and respect in a safe, comfortable environment. To begin the process of recovery, to proudly create and sustain a life without addiction, call 559-978-1507 or visit newperceptionsnorth.com. Gosh, that's amazing out of all that you've you've gone to hundreds, thousands of schools at this point? Probably uh, a little over a thousand for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to hear such a... But that's uh, what what's the, my that, words without me getting too political because it's the screwed up, effed up thing, you know, like three addicts sitting here, you know, we all got there different ways. So you take away from people and I've seen it so many times, you know, we all need purpose, you know, and and I've talked about this. Tony, one of the people when I fell off my last relapse, two people answered the phone, you and my now sponsor, which I'm still so grateful for. Um but they, they, they're lacking any sort of purpose, any sort of motivation, any desire to be anything. And that is the easiest way to want to just go and, and numb out what you are feeling because you think so low of yourself. And I'm not talking the, I don't want to get off on the, the self-esteem movement because that was all a bunch of bullshit like we can be handed self-esteem. No, we, we earn it and we start to see it in ourselves. And for me, that is the most heartbreaking part of what you were saying. They just don't see anything in themselves whatsoever. Don't know how unique, how amazing, right. uh, and what beautiful things they have to offer. And yep. it angers right. the you-know-what out of me. Yeah, sure, and it's not just uh, we're not just seeing that in lower socioeconomic regions. Right, no. We're seeing it everywhere. You, you know, what we're seeing is uh, across the board, communities now struggling with youth in a way that we've never seen before. Right. And it's why I'm busier than I've ever been, right. um, is the mental health crisis is really what's driving the drug crisis that we're seeing become more prevalent with fentanyl, right. full steam on the West Coast, um, and then the lacing of fentanyl and all of these other substances taking young kids' lives in a way that I've never seen before. In 13 years as a speaker, I never had a school contact me and say they had an active student die from a drug overdose. Flint and I heard about the individuals that died from Clovis Unified two years after they graduated, five years, 10 years, 15 years after they graduated, right? right? And then at that point, it was no longer the school district's problem. So they didn't even have to address those issues. I was just in Oregon and two students overdosed, seniors, on fentanyl. I was in Maryland two weeks prior to that. A 13-year-old student was Narcaned overdosing on fentanyl in the bathroom right. at school, right. a senior in the most affluent community in uh, Maryland, Montgomery County, uh, senior died mm-hmm. fentanyl overdose. Active students, I've had over, excuse me, 15 schools this year contact me and say they've had students, active students right. dying from fentanyl overdoses. Yeah. And really the way I see it is it's a mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. Kids yeah. are not feeling hope. Right. There's trauma at home. They're unsure of how to manage the experience that they're having. And the access to substances today seems so much more prevalent. And these phones have enabled, you know, when I was, when I was out there, uh, you were privileged to get a drug dealer's number. Right. That was it. <laughs> you were privileged, you yeah. know? I told people we who We knew somebody ha- that knew somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody, but right. never the main number nowadays on snapchat they promote it right yeah they'll hit you up right. well, i got this you need this let me know nobody ever came up to me and said hey do you need this Mm-mm. do you need that it was a secret society right off the corner of the grid right and if you wandered that way you found out where the locations were on the grid for these people and now with social media and the kids um it's almost like it's become so acceptable that kids are becoming more flamboyant in the way that it's put out there, right. which is scary in itself because they're kids. Well, and, and speaking of that, you know, just being kids, you know, when you're talking about the mental health side of this, I, I think there's a lot of parents out there that think that their kids are full-blown adults. 
And these, everybody has to keep in mind, these kids' brains are still just that, kids' brains. Mm-hmm. That brain doesn't become fully mature till the age of 26, and that's without drugs and alcohol. So, so how are parents expecting 17, 16, 17, 18, even 19, 20-year-olds to make responsible decisions, but they're allowing them to make these decisions when they're not even, in my opinion, ready to make it yet? Yeah. You yeah. know, and so, so, so what, we're all, we're all so surprised, right, when kids make lousy decisions. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, it's no surprise. But then I think that kid, because of that decision that they make, if this makes any sense, they probably realize that that was a poor decision. Then they turn to the substance because of that of that decision. I, I mean, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit here, but I'm trying to get that correlation, you know, between between maturity and being that kid and and the poor decisions that they're making. Sure, it starts you know. to spiral. So my my belief is, um, you have a young young kid let's just say six to 10 years old, really critical years in my opinion in their life. Some kids are given care, nurture, empowerment, love, um, compassion. And these individuals, just like anybody else, are going to, as they grow up in their younger years, experience rejection, Mm -hmm. experience um, meanness, uh, anxiety, mm-hmm. sadness, maybe grief at some point where they lose something that they love. The involvement of the parents will allow, if they teach this young individual what they're experiencing, through the words a young person can communicate, I feel sad, mm-hmm. I feel rejected, I feel anxious. The parent can use that as a guide to say, okay, this is what we do when we feel anxious. Mm-hmm. These are the steps we take. Really what's happening is this individual is growing up to learn that when they feel anxious, I'm still okay. Right. When I feel rejection, I still am enough. When I feel sad, soon I'll feel better, right? And each one of these things that comes with these negative or uncomfortable emotions is some type of actionary item that takes them further away from the discomfort emotionally. When an individual like myself grows up in an environment where mom and dad are workaholics and emotionally neglecting me, not by their own doing, because my parents loved me and had every great intention to provide for me what I needed, I felt anxiety but didn't feel okay. Right. Mm-hmm. I right. felt mm-hmm. sadness and felt like it was never going to go away. Mm-hmm. I felt rejection and believed I'll never be enough because there was no supporting cast to help create that story, the dialogue within myself, right? Right. So now I have all of these emotions that are like a calculus problem for me because I suck at math and I always (laughs) will, right? I don't know the answer to what this means because I can't even tell you that I have anxiety. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the individual that sexually abuses a child. By the time they're 12 years old, they'll tell you, I don't think about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yet right. they're using LSD, marijuana, drinking alcohol, is trying to run away from their house. Mm-hmm. Everything about their behavior says this, the trauma that this individual was inflicted with has a direct correlation with their behavior. They may not be thinking about it because they're not telling us mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. Is I'm going through these emotional um, peaks and valleys, and I'm trying to find answers, and I'm trying to find relief. And then you find a substance or a relationship or cutting yourself, Mm -hmm. or these types of behaviors that can offer you some type of instant change in your physical feeling or your emotional feeling, and then that becomes your survival skill. Mm -hmm. Is we're seeing kids more today struggling with feeling okay with anxiety. Mm -hmm. Kids not wanting to take masks off because they're living in anxiety and fear that this virus is going to cause them or their families harm. And and while they're feeling unsafe, they're also looking for a way to feel safe. And and this is really what I've been doing with my speaking over the last three years now is connecting the dots between, you know what, this isn't a good person, bad person thing. And we're seeing this snowball effect or this avalanche effect with young people because it really comes down to mental health. Dr. Drew years ago, I think seven years ago, said that some people just emotionally don't have a struggle. They just struggle with addiction. 
and I strongly disagree with that statement, and I almost wonder if he still believes that because even the person like yourself that may be middle-aged that has a surgery and finds Oxycontin for the first time, there is some type of euphoric feeling that fixes or manages an emotional response that maybe you didn't even know you had. And the draw to the drug is actually not the feeling, it's what it does to the feeling that you have before you take the substance. You, you have said so much right there, thank you. Because going back to my own story, I mean, man, all of a sudden my mind is going way back, <laughs> you know, because in, I was born in the middle 50s, right? And with, with, with that ailment that, that you just didn't talk about, Right. And had all those surgeries, right? And, uh, and, and again, parents, not that they didn't love me, but no, they didn't talk to me about it. Mm -hmm. Doctors didn't talk to me about it. It was simply, you know, we're going to bring you in. We're going to cut you open. We're going to try to fix you. And oh, by the way, we need to do this 23 different times, right? So as, as a young person, you know, I didn't know how to cope with that or deal, deal mm -hmm. with that. So when I, to remember my first opioid, which again, I can't remember if I, you know, six, seven, eight, whatever it was, right? Mm -hmm. That was heaven. Yeah. Because that was taking away all that anxiety. When you mentioned that, man, that's, that's what I really went through all those years was that anxiety. And here's, here's what I say now. We all know the person that says, you know, I never started using drugs because I tried it one time and I didn't like feeling like I was not in control. Mm. It made me feel out of control. Well, let me spin the table. I don't feel in control unless I'm on something. Right. Right. That made me that feel made in control. That made me feel in control. I did. wanted what you had. Right. You didn't want what I had, but I was thinking what you had was achievable through changing the way that I felt. Right. You, for some reason, had a security within yourself before you needed before before any substances came into play. So when you introduced a foreign object, it made you feel unsafe. You bet. Who wants that? Nobody. 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 Right. No human being wants to feel unsafe. Absolutely. The catch is. There's plenty of parents that are heavily involved in their kids' lives, and yet they still find themselves struggling with addiction. Because yeah. oftentimes, parents are overly involved. Right. Their yeah. expectations of their children are 4.0s or valid Victorians or Ivy League schools, or you gotta play sports and right. have a 4.0. And the only thing this young person's trying to do is measure up to the expectations yeah. of the household, when in reality, they don't feel Right. Yeah. Like the expectations they're supposed to be meeting. Right. And so they themselves find them slipping into this place where safety and feeling like everything is okay despite the expectations, you know, comfortable as that brings, mm -hmm. also is with a substance. Right. Yeah. It, it's, and, I, and I know I've said this before on, on different shows, but uh, uh, Operation Varsity Blues, the whole Lori Laughlin ordeal remember when she was paying people to get her kid into into universities oh yes like USC right, right. yes U, yes usc and and it's called operation varsity blues you ought to watch it if you have i think seen i've it. seen it it's pretty wild it's pretty wild but it, you know, I, I go back to these two kids they were 17 they're they're seniors in high school they're on their computers they're they're live they're waiting to see if they get accepted to the college of their choice and both of them don't they have a meltdown Mm -hmm. on television. I mean a meltdown. But now it even makes more sense because that's total anxiety, I think. Sure. Total anxiety because I could just picture these kids now, you know, as I'm as I'm as I was watching them going, "Oh my god, what 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 is mom and dad going to think? Right. I I I didn't get in." I mean, I can see and they're crying on air. Right. You know, and then of course my follow-up is, "Well, they're going to be walking through my door at some point." Yeah. Because it's the value that they've placed upon this thing, that yeah. the story that they've told themselves and future tripping about it, that yeah. now they've stripped away all their worth just because of this thing didn't Right, and they, and they didn't have a plan B. Parents didn't, didn't say, <laughs> hey, it's okay if you not get in, but maybe let's try Fresno State or let's try, yeah. you know, Wyoming or, or hell, what's wrong with going to a city college and, you know, for two years and getting your GED out of the way and moving forward? There was no plan B, right. no backup whatsoever. And this is, but this is also why I say, you might, I may not be able to identify growing up in a gang-ridden neighborhood where drugs, violence, prostitution, and, uh, uh, you know, colors right. were the order of the day. 
But I can tell you that the expectations and what it was like to grow up in an upper middle class family and that we may have experienced very similar emotions from different experiences that are really the root of how I ended up in prison coming from an upper middle class family, right? Was there were things missing in my family just like there's things missing in everybody's family. Mm -hmm. Nobody's coming from the perfect family. Right. You know, I, uh, I I gave my talk, when I did my TED talk at the end, I talked about the girl I dated that's father uh, sent the email and said, you know, why would you have this guy around your children? This is a man that went to prison. They mm-hmm. can't be rehabilitated. I raised you better than this. This is a professor mm-hmm. who sends this email. His daughter had an eating disorder his daughter also watched him beat mom up every week. Right. But when they left the house, they were in the nicest cars. Yeah, you bet. They left the nicest house in Clovis. Right. Where it was really big and everything looked pretty. Everything. And we grew up in a time where vulnerability wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. So we didn't talk about how everybody's home was quote unquote broken right. to some degree, right? There's always this toxic behavior that somebody has to learn how to manage while they're going through it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, because we lived in such a time where we hid everything, nobody really knew what to do with what was happening right. because life seemed to come at us at this point when we were in our mid twenties, when we were 18 years old, Mm -hmm. but we didn't know that everybody else's life was also in a very similar situation as ours. So we often compartmentalized that that, that, uh, experience to ourselves, isolated, Mm -hmm. allowed this emotional pressure to build to the point that substance people or people, places and things became our outlet to relieve ourselves of what we didn't want. Yeah, absolutely. It's so ironic you bring that up. I had a conversation not that long ago with a childhood friend of mine, and her and I were talking, and I, I went, I'm going to quote here, I didn't realize all of us were fucked up, and we had a big <laughs> chuckle about it because we started breaking it down, and it was, oh, my gosh, this person that was our friend, she went through sexual abuse. No wonder she was dating uh, guys that were 20 years old when we were 14, 13, mm-hmm. 14. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, uh so and so, their their dad committed suicide. No wonder they were smoking pot when we were right. in sixth, seventh grade. You know, it, 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 these things you can just start to see that reality of what you're talking about. That everyone is having some battle that's going on. I know we post these memes yeah. and things, and right. people don't take it serious, but it's true. Yep, everyone. Yeah. And and by the way, sometimes it's not these super traumatic events no, of not. sexual abuse or right. physical sure, abuse, right? right? Sometimes mom is diagnosed with cancer exactly. at 10 years old right. and she leaves the family in right. a very unfair way mm-hmm. because the other kids that you go to school with, they still get to have mom, right? Yeah. Right? It's how do, we, how do we conversate with ourselves about that experience? Right. Yeah. What does that tell us about life? What, how do we compartmentalize that experience? Mm-hmm. If we're not careful, we actually put ourselves in a position where we take our power away from us through the conversation we create about that experience. Or you go to war. You know, that's a big thing that I've been exposed to more is what the Mm -hmm. veteran experiences when they come home is the nightmares, the anxiety, the no purpose, you know, losing everything that they had over there and coming back to society with really no help to manage what they saw over there. And they find themselves in the same situation that I was in from a totally different reason. All right. right. You know, it's it's interesting you say that because I'm not comparing war to what I'm about to say. But as, as you know, I worked in a paramedic unit, you know, for American Ambulance, and I worked in the emergency room at Community years ago. And, uh, you know, and to see the things that I saw during those paramedic days, I mean, I might as well have been in a war. Mm-hmm. You know, it just wasn't constant. It just, but, but, but still, the gunshots, the stabbings, the the the, the car accidents. You know, you, we'd, we'd see one where where somebody was totally mangled and walked away. Mm-hmm. Then you'd see another one where somebody there was not, wasn't an ounce of blood anywhere and and dead. You know, or vice versa. You'd you'd see it all, right? But and I remember going to my parents' house one night and just just kind of breaking down and 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 talking to my dad, saying, "What? It seems like we're just pieces of machinery here." You know, I was all ass backwards at that point. And of course, yeah, I'm using everything under the sun at that point too. Um, but, but, you know, but that trauma piece, again, 
it doesn't have to be violent. It could be something like you said, as easy, not as easy, but as something as losing your, your mother or losing your dad or losing a sibling, you know. Um, Which by the way, I would go back and live my past over your, your, the situation you, you had. Yeah. yeah. I, I will selfishly say that my mom and dad and I are not super close, but I would take what I went through over losing them when I was younger any day. Of the oh, week. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. For me personally. Right. I, I, and I'm not close with my family. So when right. I hear a situation like that, I have a ton of sympathy mm-hmm. because it's not something I would wish upon anybody, anybody or even want to imagine for myself. I mean, right. and now that I'm getting older, right, I've moved to Texas. Right. Uh, you know, I can tear up thinking about saying bye to my mother and father because they're in their mid-60s. Yeah. You know, we're, we're approaching their final chapters, right? And, and, and saying bye to them, you know, my parents have meant so much to me. And I know as a young person, you're, those are your heroes. You bet. Yeah. Those are your only source of hope taking care of you, you know, to lose that in, in a snap of a finger. I... Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I lost both mine and, 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 you know, even when, when I did, it, it was, it was tough, you know, cause, mm-hmm. cause again, we didn't have the best relationship, but they're my parents. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, that they're, they're, they will always be my parents. There was never a parenting manual, by the way, for everybody out there. Okay. Nobody has that written in stone. Oh, I was going to uh, ask you for that next. Well, I struggle well, with well, two teenagers. Well, Can you pass a manual? Hey, down? come on. I, you know, I, I, I got, I got two uh, kids. I was the perfect dad. Yeah. Uh, um, but but yeah, to to lose somebody like that, um, we have to be able to know how to grieve for ourselves. Mm-hmm. I, I also believe that's a big thing. Yeah. We we I think there's not enough emphasis put on that grieving in the proper way. Even somebody that has lost a child to addiction, one of the first things I tell parents that that is this has happened to is I said take the first two years and do nothing but grieve. Find that group that you need to be associated with mm-hmm. and, and, and go through the grieving process. I think there's, there's too many parents that, that oh, wow, I could get in trouble for this. There's too many parents that dive right into wanting to be able to help somebody else or save somebody else, but they're also forgetting about the other kids they've got over here on the side. Sure. Yeah. You know? Sure. Well, I think it's no different than what you had told me and reminded me of and we probably talked about too was not letting the work that I'm doing yep. be my recovery. Right. Yeah. This is this is not your recovery. I think yeah. it's the same thing. And yes, please do help people, but man, if you're not in a good place, which you're not you going to help anybody. Yeah, journaling back, looking at where I was at in mm-hmm. life, what I was doing, I was preaching more than I was practicing. You know? well, and I think that's why you know I, I I know Tony's the same way, but but I I took seven years after I got clean to start this. You know, this was not something I wanted on my resume, to be honest with you. <laughs> I had no intention of doing this. It was, in fact, it was the farthest thing from my mind. And then all of a sudden, that's how God works, you know, and yeah. all of a sudden, okay, well, here it is, right? But, but yeah, you have, to, you have to take that time. Yeah, I had the ambitions to do, you know, what I'm doing, but I focused on the racing part first, Yeah. right? The, 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 the racing part was the selfish keeping myself upright, giving me a goal, giving me a reason to get out of bed, training, staying physically active, connecting with other individuals that were also, you know, putting their life into the work of becoming a professional athlete. And over time, the opportunities to start giving back to others Mm -hmm. became more prevalent. They grew in the amount of times that I was able to uh, do that. And I think one thing that's helped me is that as opportunity grew, I took those opportunities. Yeah. I did, and, and at the expense of letting some things go that I wanted. You, bet. you know, letting go of racing was not easy for me. Letting go of my nonprofit after it was time to right. ne- let go of the Free Will Project. I, that, that. I, I stayed in Fresno probably four years too long mm-hmm. because I didn't want to let go of something that I had worked hard to build and help other people with. So it's like opportunities have come, but oftentimes at the expense of me having to say, this is no longer for me, right? Yeah. you know? And then you have that as a grieving process you too. You bet you do. You know, I see it with athletes that I worked with, you know, they retire and they don't know who the hell they are. Right. They They're no grieving clue. the loss of the sport. Yeah. I, and oftentimes we see them, those individuals, right? right? They go bankrupt, struggling yeah, with alcoholism, 
a drug addiction because what they're trying to manage the experience that comes with the end of a career right and i'll tell you what i mean i'm 67 i mean (laughs) how much how much longer i mean everybody keeps saying you're not going anywhere and i'm not planning on going anywhere yet but you know this is this is this is our identity this is this is what we do this is this is who we are uh but there i i have to know at some point it's going to come to an end yeah at some point and and i'm already sort of halfway preparing myself for that you know because i don't want to be one of those people that 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 hang on too long mm-hmm. right and and i'm not being useful anymore I, I i because this is not how do i put this i mean my family comes first more than more than anything and i would never put anything in in, in their way um but at some point Things, things are going to end, and I hope that, you know, I'm ready for it when it happens. Well, and I think that it connects greatly with addiction because how much did we uh, self-identify by, by being an addict? You yes. Know? I mean, I was Well, everybody Jason, knew me as one, that's for yeah, damn sure. I yeah. was Jason, the fun alcoholic. I had yeah. to let go of that. I had to let go that the calls aren't going to come in anymore, right. you mm-hmm. know. Right. I'll, I'll, even though it was self-destructive and I hated it when I was sober, there wasn't going to be those texts from girls anymore. Are you coming out or none of that shit? I had to let it all go away yeah. and mm-hmm. take a different course of action. One of the biggest things that's helped me is taking away what I do as my identification of self. Yeah and turning self into an emotional being. Remove my fleshly, physical layer, and I'm left with my spirit and my emotional person. Mm -hmm. And by identifying myself as somebody that's passionate, empathetic, compassionate, um, hardworking in terms of uh, persistent, I can then take those emotions and I can say, where do these emotions where are these emotions effective, right? Mm-hmm. right? Compassion and empathy makes me great as a communicator and right. somebody that works with people struggling with addiction right. because I have the ability to feel somebody else's story and understand their situation and they can see that I see them and hear them. Right. And then now we have a connection that somebody that does not have compassion and empathy to be able to make a difference in their life, mm-hmm. right? My persistence allows me to push through situations as an entrepreneur. Right. Right? I can push through the adversity that comes with starting businesses right. or building a speaking career. And I think that's been a big thing for me is making sure that I focus on my emotional self. Yeah. Everything else is just what I get to do. Right. Yeah. You know? And and if I only get to do it, then that has an expiration date. It does. Just like me racing. Right. It had an expiration date. And sometimes we want to keep the meat in the fridge long past its expiration date or the milk long past its expiration date and we have to ask ourselves what are we doing right we're taking up space that something else could be in in there doing you bet that's effective you bet couldn't agree more how do you working with people now in in treatment uh, ph wellness with with that reframing how do you take someone with that because both of you gentlemen work with people of varying degrees, substances, uh, um, you know, and it seems to be across the board. Most of the treatment centers, the people we've talked to from Massachusetts to here, alcohol seems to be the big one, Mm -hmm. the vast majority, but how do you really work with that reframing with people with that to help them understand that? And and this is where Flint has, uh, I'm more jealous of Flint's role in this with, with new perceptions is Flint gets to be there probably way more than I've ever been at PH Wellness because mm. I'm on the road Monday through Friday right now. Um, I'm more of the face of the organization that's kind of created the vision behind what our clinical process looks like, have been sat down with all of our clinical staff and had a, a, a hand in the hiring process. Um, but a lot of CBT, DBT uh, types of therapy, we have groups that are focused on belief systems and then implementing things like fitness as an ancillary activity that people can do is really about creating a belief system in self that says I can I will and I'm able through small actionary items but also narrative therapy in which this is why we do what we do CBT trauma-based therapy this is how we reframe the experience that we're having and then this is the work that supports that Mm -hmm. over time you see us change 
right? Just like you said, you don't turn on the light switch and have positive self-esteem. Self-esteem is an actionary thing. It's mm -hmm. a verb. If you want self-esteem, you have to do something to earn it, right? Yeah. Right. Just right. like anything else. Yep. If you want to make a good living, you have to go out and earn it. Earn Nobody's going to give it to you. And so one of the things that we're doing at PH Wellness is trying to bring in the ancillary activity like fitness, mm -hmm. because each one of us as business owners has used fitness as a big part of our recovery. And I think that that's what's great about us is that we're just using what helped us. Absolutely. And I'm certain that new perceptions, it, it really could be Flint's perceptions. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because right? as yeah. owners, we create, we create what, what we what, needed. What, what, exactly what we needed. Exactly what we needed. When, you, when I go in and speak, I don't speak on a stage and talk down to people. Right. I'm talking to myself. Right. I'm going up there and speaking to Tony the way he needed to be spoken you to. Bet. And that was... That's well said, by the way. What is, yeah. What's missing? Yeah. And, and that's what we did is, is we're trying to use things like that. And then the career center that uh, once we get that really kind of full steam ahead is offer that extra opportunity that says, hey, not only do we believe in you, we've gotten you a get well job. You've come here to merge. We've stabilized you. Now you're ready for a career that you can support yourself with right, right. because you can, you will, and you're able. Right. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, one of a uh, friend of mine, former guest, Greg Champion, with what he does um, – they they do a lot of that he'll get that mentorship going you know i'll have someone come there in malibu i forget where it is nice nice really nice area been up there a couple times their houses are great uh yeah like one of the clippers is right next door their treatment oh, place but um that's talking your lingo now buddy oh, geez, yeah get me started go get me started that's a whole yeah. other podcast we can start a patreon channel Absolutely. and yeah. tony and i can go on basketball for about five hours <laughs> six um, six hours for sure yeah at least huh but he talked a lot about that, the mentorship. So it's someone would come in, oh, you want to be a screenwriter? I know someone is a screenwriter. We're, he's in recovery too. We're going to pair you up with them and get it going. Yes. So is that kind of a lot of the approach you're taking? Because I know all the gentlemen you started with are all in recovery. Yeah, but no, we haven't taken that approach. And I've actually met other centers that do do that. Um, and obviously I've heard about the one that you're talking about. And I mm -hmm. think that's, that's a great approach. Uh, I know that our clinical director... Uh, Dr. Blair Steele, she actually worked for a center that did something very similar. Mm -hmm. And they had a, a young man that came through that said, uh, I want to be a DJ. And everybody laughed at the kid. And sure shit, this kid's a famous DJ now. Is he really? Yes. <laughs> they they him. connected him with some people yeah. that could introduce him into the DJ realm. The dude travels all over Europe. He's got hundreds oh, of thousands cool. of followers. And it's like, Really what he needed was access to what he wanted to do. Yeah. And through that, he was able to, to find himself in a place where drugs and alcohol were no longer the, the, the way to feel okay. Right. right. But that's, you know, I see that as no different than somebody that finds Suboxone as the route to recovery to get themselves to a position where they're no longer self-destructing through drugs. Mm -hmm. It's a very rare case. Yeah. Yeah, it is. We could line up a whole group of people. Uh -huh. And say, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? What do you want to do? Well, I want to sell cars. Well, I'll take you over to Michael Chevrolet and reintroduce you to the, the owner, and we'll have you selling cars. Well, one week later, they're back out doing what they were doing. Yeah, exactly. Right? Just because the opportunity is there doesn't mean that Correct. the success rate somehow goes through the roof. Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But it does, uh, I think, attest to the idea of sometimes we just need one person to believe in us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know when I've, I've watched Flynn speak, haven't yet seen you speak in person, but I know that oftentimes you gentlemen are that one person for so many. You yeah. Know? Uh, yeah. L l can I read you something? Absolutely. Yep. This, uh, this, is, this is powerful to me. So I got a message Thursday last week, 410. Let me pull it up here. It says, Tony, man. I don't know if you remember me, but I used to go to Hamilton Elementary as a kid. And I remember when you came to speak to my school, my PE teachers sent you to come to speak to me after you were done speaking. But I remember you telling me to do good and improve my behavior. I should have listened to you, man. I began to gangbang and I got into some serious stuff. But I'm 20 years old now, been locked up since I was 16 years old. But I just wanted to contact you and tell you I've been improving myself currently in college trying to better my life but for some reason your words followed me my whole life well i hope you get this message i left my dad's number just in case and uh you know it might suck that this kid's probably serving a life sentence mm -hmm. um 
But that moment that we shared was what is going to carry him clearly you bet. through his prison sentence. There was something that he felt in that moment that he said, I think I need to do what this guy said now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When there is no hope in prison for many people, there's only the, the, the encouragement to continue shooting dope and drinking alcohol. And, and Flint's been doing this thing longer than I have is sometimes we don't even, we dude, even this know. was 10 years ago. Right. You know, I remember this conversation, but not until I got this message. Right. You know, it's it, it's the people that message me five years later, seven years later, and they tell you what exactly happened in that moment that you were there that you realize you knew it was bigger than you, right. but you didn't realize that there were people that grabbed onto what you said and held onto it as a truth that propelled them at some point in their life, whether it was then yeah. or 10 years later. Uh, Tony, uh, people wanna get a hold of you. Find out more about everything you're doing. Run it down for him, good Yeah, sir. you can find me on uh, Instagram. Probably the easiest way, Tony M. Hoffman. That's where I update most of my stuff. I have a Twitter, but I don't have a cat profile, so I don't really mess around on Twitter and argue <laughs> about politics. F- Facebook, Tony Hoffman Speaking. I have a podcast with about 100 episodes. Don't update it much now because of my, my schedule, but that's one choice on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcast app. You can check out my stuff about my treatment center, phwellness.com. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call Parents and Addicts in Need at 559-579-1551 or check us out online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media at Pain Nonprofit. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube. To donate, please click the link in the description and help us save more lives gripped by addiction. This podcast contains the views and opinions of hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page.